I think the future is going to be in for the field in general is going to be about consolidating and being using IVF as a treatment tool and a prevention tool for disease. I think we'll see more of that. And I think that will be regional at first, but I think over time that will become more widespread. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today on the show, I'm joined by Dr. Kenan Omertag. Dr. Omertag is a dual board certified doc in both OBGYN and REI. He takes care of all things related to pregnancy, infertility, and reproductive hormone issues. His normal day consists of minor and major surgery cases, diagnostic testing, and procedures such as IUI, all the way to IVF, to retrievals and embryo transfers. His practice focus includes PCOS, unexplained infertility, male infertility, recurrent pregnancy loss, third party, and advances advances in treatments. If there's something left, we're going to have to uncover it in the show. Dr. Omertag, Kenan, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Griffin, thanks. It's an honor to be here. I've really admired what you've done with this uh, platform. I appreciate that. What I didn't include in the intro is part of our focus today, talking about the academic practice, because I come up with guests and topics for the show very often when I'm at one of the meetings and I run into someone that I haven't seen in a while. And I think, oh yeah, that's something I need to talk about. And that's a person that I need to interview. And on my show, because it is focused on the business side of our field, I have left out the academic centers in much of that conversation. I've only had a couple episodes with guests from academic centers on the show. And you're one of the the very first I've, I've scheduled a few more, but I ran into you and, and we started talking about this and, and I wanted to talk about the future of the yeah. academic center and, and how it is today. And maybe to get to that, I'm interested in why you decided the academic route as opposed to partnership at a private practice as opposed to employment with a large network. Right. Well, I mean, first of all, again, great to be here. I mean, it's been really fun kind of watching your rise in this space. Um, So it's really cool to talk about this topic. I mean, I think if you want to just jump right in, let me jump right into it. If you want to understand where the future of the academic medical center is in reproductive medicine, I think it's important to kind of look at what the history of the academic medical center is in reproductive medicine to understand kind of how we got to where we are. So just for example, you know, one of the first you know, the first IVF cycles in this country were done at, you know, with the Joneses at the Jones Institute, an academic center. A lot of the innovation in early ART was in the academic center. Prior to the advent of ART, it's important to point out that reproductive endocrinology and infertility was actually an OBGYN boarded subspecialty, but it was called reproductive endocrine. And then the infertility was kind of like a lowercase i. And the reproductive and the endocrine were kind of like the capital letters and kind of drove 
a lot of the focus of the subspecialty. So in the late 70s, you know, the specialty of reproductive endocrinology was largely focused on steroid hormones, steroid biosynthesis. How do you actually measure an estradiol level, an LH level, an FSH level, and how do you do it effectively in a timely fashion to help augment, among other things, fertility care? But there was also an emphasis on medical endocrine things. But when IVF became a reality in the early 80s and a practical reality at that, there became somewhat of a schism. Let's also not forget a lot of reproductive endocrinologists were the early laparoscopic surgeons. So what you have with ART is, oh, we can do this? Oh, there's, there's the visionary people who kind of said, okay, I think this is going to be big. We should invest in this and we should still be REI, but we should maybe focus on the eye a little bit more because quite frankly, no one's going to pay us to take care of patients. I mean, there are medical endocrinologists who take care of patients with diabetes and thyroid issues and all these other things. We're, our space is probably better suited for this IVF ART thing. So that's where I think the divide starts to happen in the 80s. So and then it kind of go, as, the divide, kind of from here. as the divide is happening, does that mean that you chose one of the forks in the road or at least not that they're mutually exclusive, but that they do have different focuses and you wanted more endocrinology in your, in, in your practice area. How did you make that decision? With well, the I made that dis- well, to me, I, so I became interested in fertility care in 1996 when I took a, when I was a freshman in high school, and I took a class on genetics at, did a summer, nerdy summer camp, I guess, at Duke. Shout out to the TIP program at Duke University. And at the time they had cloned Dolly, they were talking about gene therapy. And I was like, oh, this science is fascinating. What's the future medical application, or what's the medical application? Because I didn't want to be a science, like a basic scientist. I wanted to be a physician. And IVF was like, oh, this is a clinical application of the frontier of science. But let me explore that. So it was actually the in vitro fertilization, the future of reproduction, the, that is what attracted me to the field. So in essence, it's kind of the IVF component, the surgery component, the endocrine component didn't really mature until I went into residency and I understood more about the field. And so now we're at a place, however, where I see that differentiation in in practice areas, but I also see maybe, is there a reconvergence as well? Because to me, it seems that some academic centers are also really powerhouse IVF centers. So is that more, is that still just further stratification of the differences that we have, or is there a reconvergence because of its practicality and also probably because of its financial impact? I think it's a combination of both. A lot of, so honestly, the ability to move egg retrievals outside of an operating room into like an ambulatory setting is what moved IVF out of the academics. Like you didn't need to be in this kind of like hospital setting. You just needed to be in an ambulatory center. And then this is the late 80s, 90s. People are kind of, managed care is changing. Physician-owned ambulatory centers are popping up as a result. So you have all this, this new delivery care. And IVF and the visionaries who were like, this is big, 
we need to do this are the ones that were also able to either politically or through their ability to influence their local hospital leadership to help support the new delivery model of this ART fertility care service. So I think what we're seeing now is we're seeing the academic centers are trying to figure out, I think people like people are trying to are recognizing that there's hey, there's a niche that in an academic center that can be had. And one of those niches could be, quite frankly, the fact that these academic medical centers have their own employees and their own self-insured policies. And there might be opportunities for academic medical centers to provide benefits that are exclusive to their fertility clinic center, allowing them to kind of provide immediate market to their own clinic. So I think just kind of meandering back to where the academic medical center might find future benefit, it could be there. Well, I want to talk about that future benefit, especially related to the prospective physician employee and pick your brain about some of the pros and cons about working in academic center. Because I can think of a few and I want to see what readily comes to your mind and then I want to further explore them. Not all academic centers are the same. I think that's the first, I mean, just like, I mean, honestly, not every private job is the same. They're all very different. But the pros and cons of academia in medicine mirror largely the pros and cons of academia in other industries. You know, in medicine, when you're in academia, you know, the primary goal is to do some sort of academic pursuit, whether that's educating or doing some research. And when I say doing research, that's actually you're getting paid to ask, you're relying on grant funding to pay the majority of your salary. That is an opportunity for academia. And when you're in private practice or when you're in any industry, your source of income is your labor as it relates to clinical care. There's a lot of that in academia. And the nice thing about academia is you can have people who, I just want to focus on clinical care and that's how I want to get paid, but I want to have an opportunity to kind of maybe dabble in these other things. So, and I think that's what attracts me to the to to this kind of model is really good at seeing patients. I can see a lot of patients. I'm efficient with my time, but I can also make time to do stuff with medical student education, resident education, and then every now and then I can dabble in a research project that I don't have to worry about getting grant funding, but I can incorporate in my routine. So it gives me variety. What I would like to find the answer to, or better said, what I'm interested in to see what plays out in the next 15 years or so is how millennials and Gen Z shape the, the nature of or the routine of what happens in the academic practice. Because I want to share one of the cons that I see is, is very often the autonomy of the division of the division chief is so limited with what goes on relative to the rest of the health system. And it's so bureaucratic that they get very little special attention. If they do get extra attention, it's often top down. They often can't even make decisions on very, uh, on starting an Instagram channel, for example, or Mm -hmm. they want to do a Facebook live event. Someone needs to sign off on that. Right. I, I see it all the time when I'm talking with division chiefs 
Mm-hmm. And I just don't see millennials and Gen Z employees and physicians taking to that. So are they going to change the the bureaucracy of the system if that is the case is going to take a long time or are they just going to say, you know what, I can get a lot of these benefits working for a larger fertility network and I don't have to deal with as much bureaucracy and is the, are the academic centers going to lose out because of that? I think there's a threat that they will, that that they could lose out on talent. So that's something that has to be, that is something as I'm very sensitive about. The question is though, what, like, what is the mission of the academic department what is the mission top down and where does the reproductive endocrinology and infertility division um, fit in that mission? And that is always subject to change kind of on whims. Sometimes it feels like, but it also, if you're just looking for like, Hey, I want this job. I want to just see some patients, a bunch of patients. I want to be around some collegial people for a couple of years. I'm going to build my brand on Instagram by myself where I'll have more flexibility to, talk freely without having to get any approval, you can do that in academia. If you want to manage, so I had this experience managing our WashU Instagram, Facebook page, et cetera. Like it, it is, there's a lot of layers, but I was also doing it at a time when they didn't really know how to do it. So they were kind of learning with us. I think the institution will flex with time, but obviously it's not as nimble. A large organization is never going to be as nimble as a small outfit, regardless of how devoted they are and what kind of lip service you get. I also think, I think though, with time, I think the, because IVF units stand, they make a lot of money for their hospitals. And I think with time as hospital leadership and academic medical center leadership evolve, I think more and more of those new leaders will have personal and at least know people who struggled with infertility and I and needed IVF and will have an intimate window and they'll be more sensitive to making the unit a priority or at least advocating for it more tomorrow than they did today and yesterday. Well, you mentioned that exercising the autonomy as an individual that I can start my own Instagram handle, for example, and promote my own personal brand. But is that always possible? Even in, it sounds like it's been possible for you. I've, I've spoken with others and granted some of the, the people that I know have been in training, but they have had their own social media channels. I don't want to say anything about where they are or who they are, but they sure. d- did a great job of, of promoting awareness and educating and it d- just included their program at a very peripheral level. Like maybe they were wearing something that had the insignia of the Uh, institution or, or it was at this setting and you know, they, something came down from their boss's boss's boss that said, stop, delete this immediately. And they're not even sure why. And, and, but, but they, they've got this mandate to cease and desist Mm -hmm. from superiors that are further up the chain than they've even met before. And that seems really discouraging for entrepreneurial physicians, for talent that want to take ownership, that want to educate, that really want to participate. And in, in my view, 
only benefits the program right. overall. Right. I, I guess, you know, how often do you see that or what are the implications of that? Because to me, it, it, it means, okay, well, I guess I, I have my answer if I were thinking about continuing with this institution or joining up with someone else in private practice or in a large group. Right. I think, you know, again, all the institute, every, every setting is different, but you need to also figure, you kind of also need to be wise about things. If you're going to you say, okay, cool, I'm in an academic setting. I know there's medical public affairs or some sort of office. Let me find out who that person is. Let me let them know this is what I'm doing. And let me figure out what the ground rules are for the institution. You're going to meet, there are going to be some people who are going to meet some resistance. And trust me, I have encountered those people. But after you explain, after you just kind of figure out what are your, what are the rules? Okay, you want me to fill this form out and make sure if I'm going to include a patient's picture, I just need to write, fill out this form. Okay, cool you know, two years later, oh, I haven't been filling the form out correctly. Okay. How do you want me to fill it out? Okay. You want me to fill it out this way? Okay. Done. So it's incorporating these things. Yeah. It's annoying. And some, you know, in a private practice, I could just say, Hey, is it okay if I, presumably you could just say, Hey, can I use this on social? Yes. Okay, cool. I don't need to have this written documentation. Perhaps some, some clinics, some larger private clinics may require it to have something in writing. So I think so I've encountered these things. They can be turnoffs, but they can also be opportunities. So for example, if you're in an institution and you have skills with social media and patient education and engagement on your platform, you should highlight that and promote that and say, hey, dean of education, hey, dean of curriculum, hey, department head. And I would honestly focus on the medical school apparatus. That's what we've done here and say, look, this is a tool. We should do a faculty development workshop. I can help lead it. And that's how you leverage your skill. And it's not so much, hey, let me build my platform. You won't let me build my brand or you won't help me build our brand. It's let me teach everybody in the institution how to build our brand and their brand. Because in the academic center, they want to know what can you do for the center at large? Not so much what can you just do for your slice of the community, even though that's what you want to do. You leverage the whole institution to get buy-in about what your skill set is, and then you cash out later to get whatever you need to do your divisional thing. Does that, so con- what, does that contradict kind of that potential benefit of, of just, well, I mean, you mentioned before, if I, you know, if I just want to build my own personal brand, I can do that. But in this case, I have to sell it back to the... Oh, but it's like, or or yeah, I can't, no. and then I have to sell it back it's to so the much, group. I wouldn't say so much. I have to like, okay, I want to build the WashU REI Division's Facebook page. Okay, there's some bureaucracy I got to go through. I figured out what it is. I just have to fill out these forms. I set up the account. They gave. They made me. Co- they made me uh, an administrator. I just got to use some common sense and recognize that when I post on here, I'm talking about the institution. Is you know and give me free reign. They're not going to give someone free reign who's just like, I've never done this before. I want to do it. They'll probably want to know a little bit more about what you want, what your messaging is. And I would have, a, you know, if you're going to, if you're a novice to it, then I would say, these are the things I want to talk about. Here's the content I want you to post. And here's how I want it. I mean, I'm happy to advise anybody out there on this because I think this is so important. And I think there's a, one, there's a good path to do it. And there are other paths that can get you shut down which again can be discouraging and be a reason why people might not want to deal with it. 
but I promise you it can actually be very rewarding. Great. I, because I don't want to advise anyone on that. So <laughs> if you're looking for a consultant on managing approvals through university setting, Kenan Omertag your is your consultant and he, your he's guy. expensive, but it's worth it. It's free 99 for the first hour. <laughs> can, can we go through a hypothetical situation? Sure, let's do it. And maybe it's not hypothetical because maybe you've done it, but uh, I think that every fertility center in North America, possibly the world, should do a baby reunion. I think it's one of the best marketing tools that you can use. And it's also so foundational for every marketing strategy that can come from that. When I consult with practices, uh, usually comes up early on in, in strategy sessions. The timing of when we do it might, might depend on its, its priority for project, but it doesn't take me too long to convince private practice owners of the value. And it's like, great. All right, well, we're going to pick the venue. We're going to get the food. We're going to get the videographer. Here's what you're going to do. Here's a strategy. And it's not terribly difficult to implement. It's logistically involved, but it's approval wise. It's, it's a thumbs up from the, the practice owner or the executive director and that's it. We're doing it. Mm -hmm. If we wanted to do that within an academic center, what would we need to go through in order to have it become a reality? So we've talked about it here and actually they did one for, I think the 20, 20 or 25 year reunion here. They did one at the science center. It was a big production. It was a, you know, and talking to our division head, he said it, you know, wasn't really that hard to set up. They just told medical public affairs and then the BJ, the hospital outreach folks, and they arranged it for us. That was in 2005 though. How would you arrange it today? It would be very similar. We would reach out to our, so like, I have liaisons that I'm in contact with that I contact and say, this is what we want to do. This is what the game plan is. Let's make it happen. And they will ask some questions about it and then they'll set it up based on what, who they think is going to show up and whatever their experiences in setting things up. So I agree with you. I think these things are, are, they're very sentimental. They're amazing emotionally on a number of levels. And yeah, I mean, there is a marketing benefit to it as well. Does, does the dean need to approve it or does the dean's office need to approve something or uh, elsewhere in the university? Or they can say, yes, you can have a reunion, but if you want to have a videographer there, you need to have this approved. Or, and if you mm -hmm. want to have it at this venue, we need to put out a purchase order to pay for the venue. Are there, what, what else is involved? That's a good question. I don't, I, I think it would vary by institution. So for example, I don't know if the university would have some regulatory things, and this is where it can get frustrating. The university might have some regulatory things or the hospital might have some regulatory things. It's just variable. And I think it just depends on the institution. I think some places it'll be more seamless than others. I think it always comes down to who's paying for this is always kind of like whoever's paying for it is ultimately going to be the one that gets to decide what the process is, whether it's the hospital or the academic center. And that can vary. The dean may not care. The chairman may not care. It might be a solely divisional process that's led and paid for. It might be the division that drives it and the hospital pays for it. It's so variable. 
but you're right. I mean, if you're in a private practice, there's very there's fewer layers of bureaucracy that are that are there. So you can say, yeah, we're doing this. This is what we're doing. It this we're paying for it, and let's make it happen. I mean, that's the thing. When you're in the academic center, a lot of things are not coming necessarily out of the division pocket. They might be coming out of other people's pockets, and that that's what leads to the bureaucracy. I'm emphasizing these cons or exploring these cons because I'm an entrepreneur. I have a tilt to a certain way, which is I sure. I, I want to have the control and, and not have the approval. That isn't important to everyone. I think it is important for entrepreneurial and some entrepreneurial docs to consider. But let's talk about some of the pros as well, because you 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 outline them. But let's talk about the the passions that you have for the academic center that if you're speaking to a certain profile of physician that's entering the workforce, you would really want them to consider of what the academic IVF center has to offer that might be less common in private practice. I mean, it kind of comes down to really two principles and that's for me at least. I mean, it's variety and opportunity. And when I say opportunity, it's opportunity for leadership. So you have in an academic medical center, you have a lot of variety. If, you know, I wanted to, if you want to just grind out and see as many patients as you can, do as many cycles as you can. And that way you can, you know, kind of get your experience quickly. You can, there's an academic center for you that can help you achieve that. Because trust me, they want you to see patients as as badly as anybody else because, as they say, no margin, no mission. You have to see a lot of patients in order to generate the revenue to help support the other missions of the institution. So clinical care and the revenue that's generated is very important. And there's that. But you can also have other varieties so that you don't get burned out so quickly because you can be out here and within two years, see 5,000 patients. And then you're like, okay, okay, I'm like totally burned out. I need to explore something else. That might require you to either leave your current situation or try to find something within your current situation that allows you to have variety. And many people often find it, but the academic center provides you more kind of structured opportunities for education and research that may not be as prevalent anywhere, or at least have the infrastructure or the depth that some people want to explore. So what do you mean by opportunity for leadership? What exists at, in the university setting that is a track for leadership that one wouldn't necessarily find in private practice or a fertility network? Well, if you want, so, I mean, just kind of starting, if you want to start at the top, if you aspire to be a administrator in a big academic center, like a dean, a chairman, I mean, take it even all the way up to a provost or chancellor. You've got to spend a lot of time bouncing around or staying in one academic institution and gathering a lot of experience over time. That's not to say you couldn't do those things if you were in private practice and came back, but those are, if you want to be a, I wouldn't say necessarily residency program director, but if you want to be in hospital administration, if you want to be a chief medical officer, if you want to be a vice president of clinical affairs for a OBGYN department, because you really know how to see patients very efficiently, you know how to implement an electronic medical record, you know how to engage patients with social media, you can have 
bigger impact on the institution at large and the community at large if you are kind of if that is your desire now obviously if you're just you're like you know i'm seven years out these things were always on my on my personal radar but my my first five-year goal was i'm going to be the best reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist i can reevaluate what the next five years will be at that point here we are we're at the next five years I'm going to be, I'm going to push myself to be the most efficient reproductive endocrinologist and fertility specialist and learn how to incorporate an electronic medical record and social media engagement in my daily routine. And I'm going to try to be the best at that. And I'm also going to advocate for those skill sets within the institution to at least promote the possibility that, hey, this is the future of medicine. I might have a skill set that could be valuable to our division, department, and institution at large. So can you come over here and listen to what I have to say? Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person before you put out an RFP or look for services, before you get your house in order, because by definition, this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world, and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned, and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, Practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now, back to Inside Reproductive Health. I see that leadership track as something that I, there's definitely a profile of doctors. That's what they're interested in. And I don't, I don't think that it's that type of track exists in parallel with, or exists at the same level at, at a fertility network, let's say. But one benefit that we haven't talked about is the case I think that had been made for a long time, which is, there's less to worry about that is not related to medicine in the academic center, meaning you don't have to worry about payroll. You don't have to worry about choosing the HR company. You don't have to necessarily worry about marketing. Whereas if you're a single physician practice owner or even a partner in a two to four, five dot group, you do have to worry about those things. And that was very often considered a large benefit. I wonder, are we talking about that less because there's a third 
group now. It's no longer a dichotomy between the academy and private practice, but I break private practice almost into two groups entirely, which is the independently owned, right. let's and say operate. one yeah. to however many docs, and then fertility networks, multiple groups, multiple doctors, multiple labs, multiple states, sometimes multiple countries. And now that might be something that they can offer, the fertility networks can offer that the academic institutions still offer, but used to have as one of their cardinal selling points. I can go work for this larger group and I don't have to worry about payroll. I don't have to worry about HR. There's a CEO, chief human resources officer. They've got the C-suite and the processes in place. Is that still, does that, does this new rise of the fertility network disrupt the recruitment appeal of the academic center in any way? I think it does, but also I don't think it really I mean, I, I think it does just in the sense that you have more job opportunities as a result of the, the business model. But I agree with you. The I don't have to deal with payroll. I don't have to deal with my malpractice. I don't have to deal with all these ancillary things. Those I, I think those are. I think most people are not really interested in doing that in any any place. And that had been academia's calling card. You're right. Now that there's this kind of third party or third method, but this has kind of been around for a while now. And a lot of physicians are getting used to, like I came up of an age where, you know, physicians were, you know, to me, it's kind of like, okay, yeah, cool. I'm an employee. The idea that I would just be in this shingle under these shingles by myself and setting up the whole thing was never, was something I saw with my own uncle who struggled with that transition. So to me, it was never, I mean, I always viewed my job as being an employee. Now, the third, what I will say, though, is the fertility networks may provide new opportunities for leadership over time, not immediately, but there may be new opportunities on the leadership side that had largely been and still are traditionally held by academia. But I, I think the, you know, having ha, not, I mean, one of the other things the academic centers, you know, talking about a pro the the fertility network will provide you your fringe benefits and all these other things and make it pretty easy for you to just plug and play but the academic centers specifically the private academic centers usually have fringe benefits that are very valuable to a lot of people and the biggest one is a tuition benefit so for here at washu for example if you've been an employee for 7 years you'll get a tuition benefit so that your children can go to washu for free or they can go somewhere else with a 40% toward, for, with 40% towards the cost of that tuition. And that's a big deal, but you could argue I could go work in private practice, make more money and make that up pretty quickly. So it's again you can kind of go back and forth on the on that pro and con. I want to go back to convergence because we're talking about fertility networks is one path as academics is another. It seems that they may be coming closer and interweaving in ways that we weren't seeing 10 or 15 years ago. You know, we see the certain university systems that are, that their division is owned by a private equity firm or partly owned, or they're, they're part of a fertility yep. network. We see private practice groups that have fellowships at very large academic in concert with large university systems. And so mm-hmm. I'm not too familiar with this area. Maybe you can help shed some light on it, but is, this, is it possible for any REI division to be sold to a private equity firm? Or can Fertility Bridge come in with some private equity 
putting money into and and broker a deal with Washington University and say, okay, now we've got forty percent of it, and so it is private, but it's also through the university. How how does that work, and what's the trend that's happening if there is one? Yeah, I mean, just purely hypothetical, right? Like, I, I mean, the example you gave, just for the record, purely hypothetical. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, yes, but, I do not have millions of dollars in yeah, Wall Street money uh, yet, unless the to, right private equity so my, firm to, is listening. To, to, your po- to your point earlier, yes, uh, <laughs> we are not trying. We are not scheming <laughs> something. This is purely hypothetical. No, I mean. Seriously, though, again, it comes down to all politics is local, right? You know, if you talk to, you know, I would encourage anyone who's interested in the relationship between Chapel Hill and UNC's fertility clinic and IntegraMed to talk to Mark Fritz. And he likes to, I mean, he's told his story about how that relationship came about. I think it really just depends on is the institutional leadership feel like a third party, be it you know, private equity firm or just a practice management firm or whatever is better equipped to do the day-to-day operation or satisfy the needs of the division and its clinical services and or its other services for that matter more efficiently than the current infrastructure. And I mean, I think many times the answer is probably, but it's so different from institution to institution that there might not there might be a financial disincentive in the long term there might be financial incentives up front that may not be good in the long term so i think these contracts and these relationships have to be dissected individually my guess is they it always comes back to you know what's in the best interest of the institution you know if the rei division is going to fold if this if we if this doesn't happen that's a big problem for the department that's a big problem for the residency program. That's a big problem for the hospital. It's gone down the line. So then it becomes an issue. If it's more, we think we can do this better. We think maybe we can make, you know, an extra 250K a year based on this. And uh, profit-wise, maybe the administration is like, yeah, let's do it. Because whatever the negatives are, are outweighed by that benefit. So it's just a uh, cost-benefit analysis that each institution has to do based on the relationship and the and the negotiation between the two parties. Maybe this is a question for Dr. Fritz or others in similar situations, but does that change the financial relationship or or potential for employment agreements or what's in employment agreements between the physician and the the system, for example, to, are there partnership opportunities? Yeah. Can you be the partner? Can you be an equity owning partner or a shareholder in that institution? So now that you're, yeah. you know, does that happen? I'm sure it does, but I'm, I'm curious who gets to be a partner. Maybe not everybody, maybe certain people do. Maybe only one person, maybe the most senior person who drove the whole project is the one that gets to benefit the most. Maybe a small cadre of people. Maybe everybody does. Maybe everyone is now, you know, university employees, but the hospital runs the whole operation and is responsible for the entire operation. And the university has nothing but a symbolic thing. And oh, all the physicians keep their university benefits, but the entire project is run and operated by either the hospital, some third party, and all they collect all the money, and then they just push it to the university. These relationships can get very complex quickly because of all the different parties involved. 
especially in large academic medical centers where you're usually dealing with the university system, the hospital system, and then whatever this third party is. You know, like many places, those systems are aligned, like take partners in Boston, the Harvard Medical System, you know, Harvard Medical School has three partner hospitals and together they are all called partners. But, you know, in a lot of systems, those two entities are wholly separate and they're aligned, largely aligned, but they still have different piece, they're different components. Like our IVF lab is owned and operated by the hospital. But if you walk through a different room, the laboratory that does semen analysis and runs all the bloods is owned and operated by the university. We have so, a few. We have a few guests. <laughs> yeah, it is. We have a few guests this year that might be able to share some insight on their experience, and and I'm going to look for a few more because you've raised some more questions that I'm really interested in yeah. in this convergence and divergence of private equity of the of of private care and now the university and the health system in a way that I, I just, this wasn't happening 10 years ago, was it? It was happening in 2005. I would go back even further. There's okay. a good article. Let me tell you this. There's a good article. This, what we're talking about today, as far as kind of the limitations of, or kind of like, what is it like practicing our infertility care in an academic center? was talked about by Michael Souls in Fertility and Sterility, Richard Reindoller, Richard Paulson, in a 2005 issue dedicated to this question of what is the future of the academic REI practice. At the time, a prominent, I don't really know, as Dr. Souls, I think he was at University of Washington, and I apologize if I'm getting this incorrectly, but he writes in, his, in the article, and I would encourage anyone who's interested in this topic to read this article, he wrote an editorial about talking about the challenges he was facing in the university about promoting his clinical mission and all the bureaucratic layers and everything. And then everyone kind of wrote their own editorials kind of in response. So check out that for fertility and sterility issue because it shines a light. The same conversation they were having 15 years ago is kind of what is being had today. Okay, so it has been happening for longer yeah. than I had considered. If we're seeing more of it now, it means that there's different types of career paths for people that are going into, whether they're going for into a fertility network or private practice or at, through a university system, there's more. I want to talk about some of the, the traditional ways that employment agreements are structured or compensation is structured in academic centers. Can we talk about that? Yeah, so let's talk about it. Are most academic systems, is there, are, are, are most of them RVU-based? Are they all RVU-based, relative value unit for many those of, that many might not use that? Yeah, many of them are. So I get, based on my RVUs, I get, now we are salaried employees and I get bonus based on clinical production and academic production. So we have a lot of institutions will do this thing where they'll have academic RVUs where you'll get certain points for publishing, teaching, being on a board for something, being on a committee, et cetera. And 
then they'll also give you clinical bonuses based on your production that are RVU based. So your base salary can, you know, if the base salary for someone coming out of fellowship is 250 in the academic center, you could get with, depending on the structure of the institution, your clinical bonus, if you're very productive, could get you well into 300 and above, depending on region and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. So if I understand correctly, RVUs are typically broken up into work RVUs, which I think we're talking about, which is what we're talking about here. It's mostly what we're talking about when we're talking about yeah. RVUs. There's also yeah. practice expense RVUs right. and malpractice expense RVUs. Is is academic RVUs and clinical RVUs, is, is that to say that there's four as opposed to three and, and each of those two are sort of fill in for work RVUs or are clinical RVUs, work RVUs and academic RVUs something separate? The latter. Clinical and work RVUs are the same. And then academic is, you know, proprietary. Got it. And so it's how are academic RVUs measured? Is that by is by course Point load scale. or point scale? And is that can that be labs, courses, if you're you know, if you're the attending for a certain group of physicians, how does that Let me give you some work? examples. Let me give you some examples. I wrote a, uh, I'm the first author on a paper. I get five points. I'm a co-author. I get two points. I gave a lecture uh, about primary amenorrhea. I get two points. I run a course for the medical students and coordinate 23 hours of whatever content and have to deal with faculty and their schedules. I get 20 points. Those are some examples. I I am a board examiner. I get 10 points. And I'm just, just, I mean, this is random. But you can see there's like some sort of scaling as to, you know, if you just go give a 30-minute lecture, that's less points than if you spend time managing the, you're the editor-in-chief of a journal. That's 20 points. Oh, you got an R01 grant? 50 points. So there's a scale that then everyone's academic RVUs are tallied and then this is, again, where there's a lot of variety in how this can be done. But people are like, okay, you got this. So based on the profit for the division or the department or the school, however it's laid out, here's the algorithm that, you know, based on this is how much we have per RVU, based on how much total profit. So we'll distribute accordingly. Okay. That makes sense to me. I've seen other systems use what is called, I've seen it called forgiven time or protected time where let's say a a physician has an RVU target and then the institution say, okay, but this percentage of time is protected. So that, that means that they only have to generate, you know, if, if, if 10% of the time is protected, they only need to generate 90% of their RVU target. Or if, right. if it were 25%, then they only have to reach 75%. Is that in lieu of having academic RVUs? No, that, that would be in addition. So like a common scenario in an academic center is like, for example, the medical school will pay... 10%, uh, 15% of my salary. They'll pay for 15% of my time because I edu- I spend time educating the medical students. So in order f- to get the quality that they want, they have to buy my time. 
So not only are they supporting my, I'm not getting additional money, but my department just has to pay me less because the rest of what they're supposed to pay me for my base is coming from the medical school, uh, coming from another revenue stream. So, okay. Yeah. So that's how, that's how it works. But I still, on top of that, you know, charge academic RVU time. So I say, Hey, look, I'm doing this. I'm still doing this. I'm still doing that. And oh, I'm still seeing all these patients too. So the, you can generate, depending on the structure, you can fight for kind of your time. Like, Hey, look, I spend all this. I spend six hours a week managing the social media account for the division. Maybe it makes sense for, to ask the department to pay for 10% of that time, because I'm going to also manage the entire department's social media account. You want to do it right. You got to pay me for that time. Oh, we don't think it's important. We're paying this person. Okay, fine. Well then, you know, I'm going to, you don't have a category for it in the academic RVU, make one, or I'm just going to put it as 20 points, which is what I've done. (laughs) Yeah. So does it typically happen when there isn't a category in the academic RVU? Is that typically when time is bought back? Well, the nice thing is most of the, again, I'm only speaking from my experience. You can just fill in what you think your time is, what your points, what you think your point you deserve. And they can decide if they think it's worth it. If this is worth giving, like, obviously I'm not going to say, Hey, you know, I drew this picture of how IVF works 4,000 points, you know, like I'll probably, you know, I'd probably say it's five points. I made a video. I put it up on the web, took me some time. So it's five points. I tried to calculate how much a point is worth, but I wasn't able to get, get to that, (laughs) but it's actually, it was actually worth a couple hundred bucks. So I think the scale actually works nicely. Who does calculate the points and then who who calculates, you know, this is, this service is this many RVUs and, and then who calculates the compensation for the department, the department management does that. So they have, and it's subject to change depending on the profit of the entire department. Do, Do they vary widely from university to university if we're at Stanford, would we expect to see something very different at the university of Iowa or, or, you know, in Florida would, or do they tend to, you know, do is a retrieval generally this many RVUs and this a transfer is this many, is that, are they similar? For those CPT? Yeah. I mean, for the, they should actually be the same as far as what the RVU multiplier is. As far as I know, I'm not going to pretend like I'm an expert in this. Yeah. The RVU multiplier for the procedure should be the same. Largely, although I don't know if the multiplier changes by region or if the dollar amount changes by region. There's probably some calculation of... I believe it's the latter, but I would love for anyone to, that's listening to anyone correct knows, me if I'm us. wrong and <laughs> they'd like to speak on that. I think that's very useful. How many, how many academic RVUs and how many clinical RVUs can a new doctor, let's say it's a doctor that's maybe in their first or second year of employment, ex- expect to produce each year or each day? How many academic ones? Yeah. So is it so, yeah, how many academics and how many clinical? Okay. So clinic, well, the work RVU is obviously just a function. Again, like if you're seeing, if you're like, hey, we, we're going to start you with four patients and you're like, no, I can see five. That will help drive your downstream work RVUs because if you see that extra patient a day or a week or two, three a week, those are going to generate 
more opportunities for a procedure which is going to generate an RVU. And again, depending on, or an ultrasound, which is going to generate a clinical, you know, work RVU. Again, all of these are very, are wholly dependent on the local fee structure and how things work. But if you want to boost your work RVUs, you just see more patients and you figure out a way to work it in. So but is, if uh, the like, target set, you know, let's say if like, I, I don't know, if, if just there were 9,000, uh, let's say the, the average doctor is expected to produce 9,000 RVUs a, a year. And then maybe you take out a uh, hundred weekend days and maybe you take out 65 vacation, sick days, et cetera. Maybe you've got, and so you're, you're dividing 900 by to 9,000 by 200. I guess I don't know what, what, what that number that would substitute for 9,000 actually is, or mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. if you have 45 work RVUs as your target per day, how that is balanced with academic RVUs. Well, I think it's, you got to figure out, okay, what is probably the most, like, what am I going to get? If it's, if your work RVUs are your are dictating your salary and or your bonus more so than your academic ones you're going to focus on what how can i ma- and your you know how am i maximize my work rvus so are you saying that that target is constructed by the individual they can say i want to yeah i want to spend more i want to have a higher clinical rvau target than a Academic target, or or is there is it set by the department? Is it this is your target for? Academic? You know, I'll tell you, it's uh, it's variable. I, all I can really speak to is my experience, which has been, you know, you large usually the clinic will tell you these are how many days of clinic a week you're supposed to be doing. So they don't, I don't, they may not have a work RVU target. They might say you need to be in clinic four days out of five, seeing patients eight to four, and then you can have this fifth day off as an administrative day to do whatever it is you want to do. Like some of these contracts from the academic center might say, your contract is for four half days a week. And then you can kind of do whatever, that's all the contract says. There's no, there might not be an RVU target in that contract. That's crazy. That's because, really insightful. Because it's not, it's not in the contract, but someone will tell you, hey, you're not seeing enough patients. And you could be like, but you know, I thought you said I just needed to do four half days a week. <laughs> well, well, this is one of the, I often criticize employment agreements in private practices that particularly with eligibility for partnership, eligibility for buy-in, it's not enumerated very often yeah. in employment agreements. And so I thought, well, certainly systems with that use RVUs would have that enumerated, but you're saying it's not always the case where targets I mean, are enumerated. No, I, I mean, no one has said, I've never, I mean, I, every, every, I get monthly updates as to where my targets are and how I'm doing. And I usually compare it. And I'll tell you the first year I was like, what the hell is this? I don't know what this is. Can someone explain? I mean, I conceptually know what it is, but I don't know what it is, honestly. Let's be real. So then I kind of said, okay, I did this amount. So I just kind of, okay, this amount of RVUs led to, and academic RVUs led to this base, this bonus plus my base. 
okay, that was my target. All right, cool. So maybe I should stick with that. Or maybe, cool, I wasn't that busy. There was some other stuff. Let me push it the next year and let me change the schedule. So I have some autonomy in my current setting to kind of set, hey, let me, let's do a little bit more here. Or let's kind of back down a little bit on this side with obviously some approve, you know, with obviously sign off from staff, from leadership. You taught me a lot more than I knew about that subject and hopefully for the listening audience as well, especially those that are mapping out their career path within the next few years. I'd like to conclude with just how you see the the future of of the academic center and the participation of entrepreneurial physicians, because I very much include you in that group. You and I met at my very first meeting in the field. So a lot of people don't know this about me, but I had moved back to the United States in 2015. And I didn't know anyone at that time. I went to MRS, which was the Midwest Reproductive Symposium, a meeting that I was unfamiliar with at the time you were speaking. Uh, We started talking because you're your topic was about social media. And that's how I broke into the field was originally just through Facebook community management, which grew into social media, which grew into digital marketing. And a lot of people are familiar with our, with my book, The Ultimate Guide to Fertility Marketing, because it's what they download. But there was actually a book before that. I, I don't even know if I still have a copy of it digitally anywhere. It was called Digital Marketing for Fertility Centers. The only I, I remember co- that. In which, you, in which you were a contributor and, and your, yeah. your name is on that as well. Yeah. And so I think you may have been the very first person that I ever collaborated with someone on content with in, in the field. Then we didn't talk for three and a half years and, then, <laughs> and now you're back on the, the, the show. But I do consider you one, one of these people that's very entrepreneurial. And so I, I'd like your thoughts on, in concluding of how that, entrepreneurial profile, someone who wants to add to the system, not just say, I'm already following uh, an established process, but rather contribute to it. What's the future for them and consequently for the Academic Fertility Center or REI division? Wow. I mean, I appreciate the, the shine, man. I mean, I'll just say real quick, I remember after the talk I gave in Chicago, you were like, hey, man, you should maybe think about this Instagram thing. And I was like, isn't that just what people take pictures of their food and stuff? And you were like, yeah. And I was like, what about Twitter? And you were like, no, man, that moves too fast. You should check out Instagram. And I came back to Instagram like two years later and I'm like, yeah, Griff was right. This is where the action is. This is where the best platform for this. So shout out to you, man, and what you've been doing with Fertility Bridge. I do also remember reading some other blog of yours about, and it probably was on Fertility Bridge, it's just about the future of the field. I mean, I think your your insights are pretty accurate and kind of the way I see it is pretty like what I read from you is like, I'm like, yeah, that's pretty spot on. So anything I can do to inform the academic side and really this, the field in general to add to your knowledge and your community, happy to do. So as it relates to the future, I don't think I'm the first person to say this. I know I'm definitely not. But I think the future is going to be in for the field in general is going to be about consolidating and being using IVF as a treatment tool and a prevention tool for disease. I think we'll see more of that. 
And I think that will be regional at first, but I think over time that will become more widespread given the ability to test embryos and the potential use of CRISPR while terrifying for a lot of folks may be inevitable for others. I think that's something we'll be dealing with in our lifetime for better or for worse. But from the academic, I think the other thing to point out is what is the role of the Academic Medical Center in medicine, specifically in reproductive care? Because a lot of the innovation and a lot of the tinkering in science usually comes out of the academic centers and then gets pushed into practice. That's not like in our field, that doesn't really happen that much anymore. I think ICSI was probably the last thing that came out of an academic collaborative, you know, purely academic pursuit. And I mean, I'm not, I mean, there might be other things I'm missing, but I think the biggest role the academic center has to play in pushing forward the progress of fertility care is in its ability to provide access to fertility care. Academic institutions are large. They have 15 to 40,000 employees. State institutions are big. Times are changing and employees want fertility treatment benefit. Who better to give it than their employers? And I think fertility clinics and reproductive endocrinology divisions have an opportunity to lobby university and hospital administrators to make carve-outs for institutional employees that are exclusive to the institution's fertility practice. I think that will be the future of the academic medical center and how it can leave its best imprint on the reproductive endocrinology and fertility division and its surrounding community. All capital letters. All Dr. Kenan Omertag, thank you for your kind words. Thank you for your contribution to the content over the yep. years. And thank you for the insight that you gave us today on this show. Yeah, thanks, Griff. Thanks for having me, man. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.